not be amazed, but preaching through this book has been such a bomb to my soul. can't believe how rich it is. I don't know why it took me this long in my ministry to preach through this book. So it's Genesis 16. stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Hear God's word to you this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Berit. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I thank you from my heart that you are just moving upon me through these words of yours, melting my heart, conforming me more to the image of Jesus, though I don't deserve it, and it's just profoundly speaking to me. I say this in the presence of my brothers and sisters because I'm asking, I'm begging you to do for them what you're doing for me right now, that you would speak your words of love in such a way that it would, they, they would hear it, Lord. 
they would have the ears to hear and eyes to see your wonderful words of life and that this word from you would change them and change me. Lord, we ask it as we abide in Christ through faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If I had to make a name for this sermon, you know, a lot of times, you know, us preachers, we have to title our sermons. I'd call it grace that is greater than all our sin. That's what I would call it. If there's anything we've seen in our study of Genesis 1 to 15 so far, it's this. Since man's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, this is profound when you think about this. If God wants to enter into a covenant relationship with any human being, by definition, it has to be by virtue of his amazing, gracious, condescending grace. In other words, the only human friends that God can have, think about this, are unworthy, fallen, depraved creatures. You know, we come to a sermon, we come to the word, and usually we come from our own perspective with our own needs, from our own, we view it from our own little world, and very rarely do we view it from God's side of the equation. The covenant maker. The one who keeps his promises. The one who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. You know, it's part of the price that our holy, good, and merciful, and loving, and just God had to pay for not obliterating us right away when we rebelled against him with that cosmic rebellion. And we chose to believe and to serve the lie rather than trust him and believe the truth. This means for God dealing with the pain and the disappointment of your covenant partner, listen, making sinful choices, falling into seasons of doubt and sins of cowardice and all other kinds of sins. As I mentioned earlier, what God has to put up with in order to be our friend. And even for us, it, it can be hard to swallow. I got to admit for myself, it's hard to swallow that even the greatest of men, even men of exemplary faith, like Abraham here, they're still flawed. They're still depraved. They still have sinful natures, and that means they fall into grievous sin at times. Eric Sauer once put it this way. I love this quote. It's one that we should memorize. If you wish to be dis disappointed, look to others. If you wish to be downhearted, look to yourself. If you wish to be encouraged, look upon Jesus Christ. We'd all do well to keep this in mind as we look at this less than stellar moment in the lives of Abram and Sarai. This chapter reveals two things to us in the broad picture. It reveals to us both the tragic consequences of listening to even the sweetest voice that contradicts the word of God. There are real, serious consequences to that. We're going to see that in a moment. But more importantly, I think it's important to see the blessing of being in a covenant relationship with the God of all grace. That's going to be the overarching theme that we've been seeing that continues from Genesis 1, and it's still going to keep going 
all the way through the New Testament to the book of Revelation and beyond. We don't want to so focus on man's sin that we don't marvel at not God's grace, but the God of grace. We're talking about a person, not a force. So we're going to look at this this morning. You'll be glad to know I only got two points. We can rejoice in being recipients of God's covenant of grace, even when we are experiencing the consequences of not living in step with that grace. Didn't have time to do the slide, so I'm going to repeat that again. We can rejoice in being recipients of God's covenant of grace, even when we are experiencing the consequences of not living in step with that grace. Two simple points we're going to see. Abram and Sarai's lapse of faith, and it's a biggie. And secondly, God's relentless grace. That's it. So take a look at the first one. Abram and Sarai's lapse of faith. Now the text tells us plainly, we need to see this, it's been about a decade, it's been 10 years since God first called Abram to leave his ancestral home and his family and to go to the land that God would show him, right? That was back in chapter 12, but that was between 12 and 16. You know, think about it this way, because they read real quick. That's 10 years. That's a long time between those few chapters. So it's been 10 years since God promised Abram a son from his own old, beat-up, worn-out body. Now, you may not realize this, and it really hit me when I thought of it this way. Ten years is a long time to wait when you're a senior citizen. You know what I'm saying? This ain't when you're young. It's not like you got your life ahead of you, as it were. We saw in chapter 15 that earlier Abram complained to God that he still had no promised son, and that, that so then his servant would have to inherit everything of his and, and be his heir in fulfillment of God's promise. But God made it really clear in no uncertain terms, chapter 15, verse 4, this man, your servant, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. You know, it's like you had to outline it. Like the other day when someone called me Santos, who I've known for about three to four years, and it was snowing outside, and so I wrote my name in the snow and said, you see that? Do you see any S at the end? And they were like, yeah, okay, okay. But th you know, that's what God had to do here. No, from your own body. So knock this talk off. And then God did that. There's that beautiful scene we, we talked about. God takes him out to the desert sky, which would be so illuminated. You'd see tons of stars. And he says, Abram, look so shall your descendants be. Count them, if you could. That's what I'm going to do for you, Abram. And we get this beautiful line that Paul quotes a number of times in the New Testament, and so does James. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 15, God uh, confirms and makes the formal covenant with Abram, assuring him that he will do what he promised, Remember, he cuts the animals in half, puts them aside, and he comes through symbolically through that fire. Abram could take that promise to the bank. Now let's fast forward a number of years. Abram's about 85. No spring chicken. Let's read verses, uh, the first few verses of chapter 16 again. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, 
The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Just one word that you need to know culturally. This wasn't this, some crazy thing out of the blue that never happened before. In those ancient times, if a woman was barren, she could contract, she could use one of her maidservants uh, um, as legally it's kind of what we have today, surrogate mothers in a sense. It's kind of similar to that. So she could bear the child. So this wasn't a, um, a lustful thing about it. It was more of a legal thing for Abram. Okay, I can, I can sleep with her and that will fulfill the promise. Then that son will take the place since my wife is barren. And we see that throughout the story. Sarai still Abram's number one to a fault. We'll see in a moment. So I just want to give you that background because it sounds weird to our ears. Yeah, just go sleep with my servant. Ah, that's not how we do things today. But that's kind of how they were looking at it, just so you understand the background. But even having said that, man, this is all kinds of messed up. That's what came to my mind when I was just like, this is all kinds of messed up. First of all, look, here's the thing. We see that Sarai was tired of waiting. ruh -ruh. She became impatient with two people in particular. The first one she was impatient with was God. See that in a moment. Don't miss the language she uses when she brings up the issue to her husband Abram. What does she say? The Lord has kept me from bearing children. But that means she understood this is a God thing. You know in your life when you realize you've, you've tried every other angle, you've run down every other road, then you realize, hey, wait a minute. I think this might be God. Well, she figured it out. In other words, God isn't working fast enough for me. Hello? He's not coming through like he said he would. So here, take my servant, lie with her. Perhaps, notice, do you notice the perhaps? Don't miss this stuff. Uh, perhaps I can build a family through her. She's saying, in effect, enough waiting on God, Abram. But then she's saying something to Abram, too, in case you didn't notice. I'm tired of your inaction. Why aren't you doing something about this? Why do I got to take the initiative? Now, you know, I had to uh, use a tissue when you were praying. God's, I told you, he's really been working on me. And, uh, while I'm in there, I'm hearing all your prayers. And I'm hearing all your prayers as a pastor, my heart is feeling for the cries of God's people. And then it dawned on me, how much more does your Heavenly Father feel and hear for you when you cry out to Him? And I bring this up because sometimes... God doesn't work in our time. A lot of times, most times, he doesn't work according to our timetable. And we start questioning, are you listening? Do you care? I'm sick of waiting. And so don't look at Sarah like she's some abnormal monster on the one hand. 
we should understand as humans. But we should understand from God's perspective that his timing is always perfect. And that he loves us. And he knows. He could be trusted. How much more does he have to show us? He could be trusted to do what he says. He doesn't need your help. Thank you. So this wasn't the best moment in an otherwise woman of faith's life. At this point in time, this moment in her life, she's looking a lot more like another woman we've seen in Genesis than the woman of faith and submission that's held up for godly wives to emulate in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3. Where have we seen this before in our study of Genesis? You already know where I'm going with this, some of you. In the Garden of Eden. Remember, Eve went ahead and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She didn't want to wait on God. The serpent told her, you could be wise now. You could be like God now. She took and she ate. And what'd she do? She gave it to her husband here. And then he did what? He took and he ate. Well, I want you to see the parallel. Don't miss this. Sarah took her maidservant. Gave it to her husband, and he partook. Literally the same thing. So here we have the exemplary couple of faith looking more like the rebellious couple who led the world into sin. God doesn't hold back. He shows us the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm thankful for that. You know, it's not a Hollywood movie where you say, man, that guy's a superhero. I can never be like that. He has no problem. In Abram's case, don't worry, I'm going to just pick on the wife's situation here. In Abram's case, he listened to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. Again, like someone else in the garden. It's a hard lesson that we really need to be reminded of constantly, not just husbands for wives, but believers in general. Our gracious covenant-making and covenant-keeping God calls us to resist every voice that speaks contrary to his word. Even if it comes from our most intimate of relationships, the bone of our bone and the flesh of our flesh. The old hymn puts it this way. I was in a hymn mood. I'm going to quote a, quote a couple of them. Get over it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. And then here's the line. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I don't care how sweet that frame is that comes and says something against what God has said. And I don't care what hit we got to take because sometimes we do take the hit. It's called being persecuted for Jesus' sake. And he says, great will be your reward. Even if it comes from your spouse, your parents. You remember what Jesus said. Anybody who loves what? Mother, father, spouse, more than they love me, they're not worthy of me. Now look, I do some marriage counseling. I've done a lot in my life. I see a couple there that's probably smiling as I'm saying it. But I spend a lot of time, I spend probably a close to a session, really reasoning with husbands or husbands-to-be that they need to give in, allow their wives to influence them. That they're not little dictators in their home. That they're, co they're equal heirs of the promise 
especially if they're believers, with Christ, and that they are to deal with their spouse in a loving and understanding way and share responsibility and get her input and don't just make unilateral decisions that you're making for both of, of each, both of you. However, this is where God tests our mettle as husbands. Our courage to follow through trusting God even sometimes when our beloved wife is telling us to do something different. And of course it goes the other way. Uh, Peter talks about that when wives have unbelieving husbands, for instance. It's going to be a test whether they'll quietly trust God or give in to fear and sin. But in this case, Abram blew it. He caved, as we would say. And he did so in order to keep the peace. He was guilty of a peace-at-all-costs attitude. Look, God loves peace, but not at all costs. Okay? You can't hold the hand of the devil thinking that you're going to get God's peace. That's not the way God works is peace. It's the wrong kind of peace. That's called appeasement, by the way. It's not called peace. S.G. DeGraff puts it this way. It quickly becomes obvious that Abram and Sarai were on the wrong track for their, pain, their plan brought them all kinds of misery. If you're wondering whether or not this was the right thing to do, well, we're going to see in a moment. Wow. Talk about making your life as complicated as you possibly can. You know, my wife and I are in our 50s. We talk about simplifying our lives. Well, Abram and Sarai were senior citizens, and they did just the opposite. They just made their lives a whole lot more complicated. And so we see here, even God's choicest saints are capable of falling into grievous sin and thus having to face the sad, difficult consequences. Listen, ask King David, whose family life was never the same, whose political reign was never the same till the day he died because he chose to go after another man's wife and then commit murder to cover it up. God doesn't play favorites. There were consequences. God said, I forgive you, but the sword will always be in your house now. It's going to be a rough line to, to toe. One of my favorite Old Testament characters, and the most, one, I would say almost the most tragic, he had the most potential. Remember a guy named Samson? He sinned against God instead of having, uh, marrying someone from his own people. A believer is messing around with foreign women. And you remember the whole story with Delilah. Well, you remember what it led to in his life? The loss of both of his eyes, having them plucked out, gouged out. That was not a pleasant experience. Having to dance in front of your enemy so he lost his dignity. And then ultimately, in his one last act of revenge, he lost what? His life. There are consequences. God's a forgiving, he's a good, and he's a merciful God. There are consequences. And so here we have Abram and Sarai having to deal with a very messy and complicated situation the rest of their lives, which will spill out into world history. Because they didn't wait on God. And they decided they want to take matters in their own hands and do things their own way, not God's way. We're going to, we see in this scenario with Hagar and Ishmael 
Abram's and Sarai's refusal to wait on God's time and taking matters in their own hands caused what? Trouble and pain. And listen, here's the important thing. It caused trouble between Sarai and Abram. Marriage issues, in case you didn't see it. When Hagar did get pregnant, she began to despise Sarai. And then who does Sarai blame? I heard, I even, I heard my wife go, huh, when we read it. This part. Sarai blames it on Abram. What does Abram do? He compounds his original sin of compliance by complying with his wife's ill-conceived plan again. He says, eh, do whatever you want. He listens to her again, not just once, but twice. Allowing her to mistreat Hagar, who in this case did nothing wrong, and it ends up driving her out into the cold. The text doesn't leave us guessing as to what God thinks of all this. Verses 7 to 14 describes the tender scene where God seeks out Hagar and speaks words of comfort and kindness to her. God intervenes with Hagar. We read it. I'm not going to go into all the details this morning. We don't have time. But he intervenes between her, with her and her child who has been suffering the injustice of basically being sent away in poverty and distress in order to, they were trying to cover up their own sin, really. They're saying, let's get rid of her. And we won't have to deal with the consequences. And I love one more quote from S.T. DeGraff. He says this, God simply cannot stand the sight of injustice within the covenant circle. Injustice there offends him more than anywhere else. Want me to re-say that? He hates injustice in the church. He hates it in the world, but he doubly hates it when he sees it among his own people who should know better. Although this might be a crass way of putting it, I, you know me, I double-guess myself sometimes, but then I end up erring with being too risky. But what we see here is God cleaning up Abram's mess. We want to know what's really going on. He shows kindness and compassion to Hagar, which Abram should have done. He sends her back to Ab he sends um, Hagar and the child back to Abram's household to be taken care of. What God is saying is, Abram and Sarai, you did wrong by her. You're gonna make this right. Right now. God doesn't turn a blind eye because they're his favorites, his chosen ones. He works in the situation so that his chosen ones will make it right. But don't miss this. This is what's important. God's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. But by taking these matters in their own hands, they made their life extremely difficult. And they didn't do it, as I mentioned before, just for their family. They did it for the world. And I thought about this, and it really hit me. <laughs> if you ever are impatient, you're being impatient with God's promise to us. If you're being impatient with God when he tells you to wait and to follow his will rather than your own will, all you got to look at if you want to see what's going to happen if you don't is the Middle East. To this day, there's unrest in the Middle East. And there always will be. Why do I say that? Ishmael. The Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. God said they would always... He would be against them, and they would be, and, and we, to this day, that's Abraham's mess. 
Time doesn't permit us this morning to get into all the details of the consequences of Abraham and Sarai's failure to wait upon God. And that's okay, because that's not the main feature of the text. Our main focus, and this is my second and last point, not as long as the first one, so you can relax on that, is this. It's God's relentless grace in the midst of the situation. Now, God's response to this whole debacle is both surprising and deeply encouraging to sinners like Abram, to sinners like Sarai, and to you and me. Now, Hagar accepts the comfort and kindness of God, and she goes back and she submits to Sarai. Now, I could preach a sermon on that. I don't have time, but I would if I did. After she's been treated the way she's been treated, she listens to God, and she goes submits to the woman who treated her like junk. You see that in the text? And then we read this. So, Sarah, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, this is what was really cool to me. It's pretty clear that Abram accepted God's gentle and firm rebuke. Why do I say that? What does he name the child? How would he know to name the child that? I'll tell you how. Hagar recounted the story of God's mercy and grace. And Hagar, I mean, and, and Abram took it on the chin. He said, we'll call him Ishmael. In other words, I hear you. The Lord has spoken. The old Lutheran commentator, he, he's really good. I've been really enjoying him. Leupold is his last name. He says, these failings of God's frail children merely offer the background against which God's mercy is displayed the more gloriously. Grievous as the patriarch's sin is, in other words, Abram's sin, and though it might appear as though it might annul God's gracious promise, yet the covenant survives. Now here's, this is another interesting thing. Sometimes you do have to read between the lines. No doubt Abram and Sarai figured to some extent, this is probably in their mind, I'll show you why. All is well that ends well. Even though it was painful and it was messy and we experienced the discipline of the Lord and we had to eat some crow, at least now we have our promised son. Ishmael is God's promise. See, he fulfilled his promise. Now why would I say they believe that? Real quick. We turn to Genesis 17, which is the next chapter. Um, you don't have to do that. You can check up on me later for time's sake. I just want to make a quick point. We're fast forwarding between 16 and 17, 13 years. Which, by the way, if, if we understand this correctly, that means God did not speak to Abram for 13 years after he had Ishmael. So the word of the Lord comes. 13 years later, Abram's 99 years old happy with his 13-year-old's promised son in his mind, Ishmael. The word of the Lord comes to Abram again. He reinforces his covenant. We'll look more at that in detail next week. Pete will lead us through that in the week after. But if we jump into verse 15 of chapter 17, we read this. God speaking to Abram 13 years later. As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her that she will, so she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Listen, he laughed and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? 
Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abram said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. You realize what's going on here? Abram's like, wait a minute. I thought it was Ishmael. And he still argues with God. Well, can't Ishmael be the one? And what does God say? I love it. But God's basically saying is, I hear you, but no. No. I promised you a son. It's going to be a miraculous son, and it's coming through Sarah. So this is what God is telling us, the main point we have to hear is. God's letting Abram know. He's letting all who come after Abram know this. That means you and me. And it's this. Our salvation will never come by relying on human efforts. In this case, bearing a son through our own ingenuity, by human effort. It can only be wrought by a supernatural work of God and received by faith alone. That's the message. This son is a miraculous son. This son has all to do with what God does, nothing to do with what man does. A lot more going on here than just a little family story. In other words, God's promise of a son will not be anything short of a divine miracle, a supernatural work of God's grace alone. One more quote from Leupold. God's promise of a, um, God wants it to be clearly understood that the child involved is in every sense to be the child of promise. Yahweh's grace will give him. Man could contribute nothing. The experience of this chapter makes this fact most clearly apparent to Abram and Sarai. Listen, this is what we need to be considering today as we look at this text. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers, sighs and tears can bear my awful load. For us, under the new covenant, we look not to the miraculous birth of Isaac, the son of promise, but rather we look at the miraculous birth of his descendant, the Christ. His miraculous birth, which was even more miraculous than this, was a virgin birth. We look at his death. We look at his miraculous resurrection, his perfect life, his death on our behalf. And we don't rely on our own efforts to appease God's righteous wrath. We don't trust in our own works or ingenuity to connect us with God's favor and his grace. We rely solely on the work of Jesus Christ, the promised son. I told you I was in a hymn mood. One more. Actually, a line from another one later, but at the end. Same hymn, thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Now listen to this. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. The God of the Bible, my brothers and sisters, the one true God of heaven and earth, the God of Abram, is indeed the God of all grace. And he will do what he has promised, even if it kills him. Because it did. On the cross. That's the kind of love that God has always had for those he calls out of the world, out of darkness, into his light, and into his family, the church. 
What shall we say? I'm going to close with this. What shall we say in response to this? Here's what I want to leave you with. Sometimes as a preacher, I'm almost afraid to preach the kind of sermon I just preached, exalting God's grace despite our sin, because I'm afraid people will take it the wrong way. This is what I mean. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you toward what? Repentance. In other words, don't you dare take this message as, Oh, so it doesn't matter. God's going to keep his word so I can live any way I want to. Paul addresses that in Romans 6. What about those who say, let us sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So then what should our response be? Last hymn quote, but we're going to sing it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Genesis 16, the word of the Lord. May he bless it to your heart and your life. Not just today, the rest of your days. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that you have kept the covenant. Throughout the ages, throughout the years, you just continued to move history according to your will and your plan to bring about the real promised son, the Lord Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham, descended from Isaac, the promised son. We thank you that he is the savior. He's the victor. He's the hero. And that we are only yours through faith in him. Not the work of our own hands. Not anything we could ever do as sinners. Thank you for the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. That means everything to us. That you don't treat us as we deserve. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in a way that says thank you. On a, on a momentary, not just day to day, but second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. Make us more and more wholly yours in practice as we most certainly are in position in your sight. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.